Thanks, John and Paul, for including me in um, today's session. It's really a, a pleasure and a great opportunity, since most of you didn't get to go to CROI, to give you what I think were some of the highlights. As you know, CROI is probably the most important scientific meeting related to HIV and increasingly related to hepatitis C in co-infection and even mono-infection that's going on in the United States, usually in the United States. This year it was in Atlanta about two months ago. There are about 4,000 delegates, 1,000 presentations on a variety of different topics, and my challenge was to pick out the ones that I thought were either the most clinically relevant or perhaps most interesting to share with all of you. Uh, there's a lot to go through in a short period of time, so these are my disclosures. It's online in the handout and was listed earlier in the session. These are the objectives. will be to summarize key new data related to the management of antiretroviral naive and experienced patients, new data related to HIV cure research, and describe recent and future strategies for using antiretroviral therapy to prevent HIV infection, as well as a few other topics that I will be discussing. Let me open with a single question for all of you. Which of the following is true with regards to pre-exposure prophylaxis? Tenofovir FTC has consistently been shown to work better in men than women. Tenofovir FTC does not work in men who have sex with men. Adherence is a relatively minor problem when using a one pill per day option for PrEP. And the VOICE study did not show a protective effect of Tenofovir FTC, Tenofovir, or Tenofovir containing vaginal gel. Go ahead and vote. Great. So about half of you said the voice study was the correct answer, and about a quarter picked number one and three. So we'll go through some of the data and bring everyone up to speed on this issue. Next slide here. So I'm going to talk about prevention, antiretroviral therapy, cure, cardiovascular disease, and HCV. Again, picking out what I thought were some of the highlights and sort of new emerging themes in each of these areas. So from a prevention perspective, I think everybody is aware that there have been a few major advances over the last several years. One of them was certainly the use of therapy for prevention. This is the HPTN052 study. It's listed at the top of this figure that demonstrated that if you treat HIV-infected individuals in a discordant relationship, that you reduce the risk of transmission to their partner by 96%. I think everyone is aware of this. The other big advance with regards to treatment as prevention is the context of PrEP, the pre-exposure prophylaxis. The first major study that came out on this was using a tenofovir vaginal gel that translated in the Caprisa 004 study into about a 40% reduced risk. Uh, and then there are a variety of systemic PrEP studies. The first one that was published was amongst men who have sex with men, showing a reduced risk. These are all summarized on this slide. Uh, and there have been a few other studies in high-risk heterosexual men and women demonstrating a benefit. And then at the very bottom in yellow, there was a study called FEMPREP, which was a study of high-risk heterosexual women that was stopped prematurely because it demonstrated absolutely no protective effect whatsoever. And we've since learned from this study that using a variety of different assessments of adherence, that despite the fact that the patients claim to be taking all of the medications on a consistent basis, using a biologic measure of adherence, looking for drug levels, demonstrated that only about a third were actually taking the drug. And it's thought that this was the reason why there was no benefit. But there was a large study that was underway called the VOICE study 
which was designed to address this question of high-risk heterosexual women that was thought would be very complementary to the data that already exists. And we've been hearing little, little bit of updates from this study for a while as a result of some DSMB recommendations, but the data was formally presented for the first time at this meeting. So this was a phase 2B study in 15 trial sites in Uganda, South Africa, and Zimbabwe that provided comprehensive HIV prevention counseling, as all these studies do to all patients enrolled, and then randomized them to one of five arms, so about 1,000 patients per arm. They received either a gel placebo versus the 1% inoperative gel. In this case, unlike Comprisa's study, though, it was given daily rather than before and after intercourse. So that was one major difference. And then systemic PrEP with either tenofovir, tenofovir FTC, or a placebo. And this you can see the data here and the baseline characteristics. And during the course of the study, the Data Safety Monitoring Board prematurely stopped the tenofovir gel arm and the tenofovir alone arm. Because although there was no evidence of any safety concerns, there was also no evidence of any benefit. And the data was presented for the first time here, along with the data for Tanafir FTC. And if you look in the table on the right-hand side of this slide, you can see that the HIV incidence for 100 patient years of follow-up was virtually identical across all of the arms, showing not even a hint of any real protective effect. The incident rate was quite high, as predicted, almost 6%. Adherence per self-report and pill count and vaginal applicator collection was on the order of 90%. But when they used a biologic measure, actually looking for evidence of tenofovir in the blood, they found that on the order of 30% of patients had it. And in fact, it actually got lower and lower with time. So again, the likely explanation for the lack of efficacy is the fact that people simply did not use it, which again is very consistent with what was, which was seen in the FEMPREP. And illustrates an important point, that tenofovir FTC and perhaps tenofovir are effective, but they need to be used correctly, and adherence is going to be a major obstacle to successful use. What we end up with is exposing people to all the risks of therapy without any of the benefits, if we can't come up with a strategy to enhance adherence. So at the same session that the voice study was presented, there were two other interesting presentations that I think highlight what may be the future of PrEP moving forward. And these were studies that were done in macaque models, but one of them used a tenofovir vaginal ring, demonstrating that six of six macaques were protected from repeated IV challenge, or intravaginal challenge. And then they used this 744-LAP, which is a new integrase inhibitor, similar to dolutegravir, but in a long-acting preparation, and demonstrated that using monthly or maybe even less frequent injections protected eight of eight macaques from repeated rectal challenge. So this is one of several ways in which we may be able to overcome the limitations of current PrEP. So let me tell you about antiretroviral therapy studies. There was one important study in naive patients and several in treatment experienced patients. There was also some new data from the HIV surveillance of resistance studies that are being done, where they look between 2000 and 2000, 2007 to 2010 at transmitted resistance. They identified people who were treatment naive did resistance testing on them, did supportive tests to determine whether the person is likely to have been infected in the last six months versus chronic infection. And they demonstrated here that overall, you were able to detect transmitted resistance in about 15 to 17% of individuals. And this was true regardless of whether they were newly infected 
or had been chronically infected. So completely supportive of the current recommendations to do drug resistance testing on all people entering care regardless of duration of infection. As has been seen in previous analyses like this, NNRTI transmitted resistance was most common, followed by nucleoside resistance and PI resistance. They did not and have not yet been looking at integrase resistance, and as you know, as integrase inhibitors become more commonly used, this will likely become an issue. Thus far, it's on the order of handful, literally a handful of cases of documented transmitted integrase resistance, but I'm sure this is something that they'll need to start looking at in the future so we can track this issue. Because right now, in order to get integrase resistance testing, you have to order a separate test. And most of the recommendations are to not do so because it's so infrequent that it's not justifying the cost. But that might change with time. So the one important study in treatment-naive patients was the study using a new formulation of tenofovir. And as you know, tenofovir is listed as one of the preferred nucleoside backbound regimens for all first-line all therapy. But it comes with some side effects that are relevant. We worry about renal disease and particularly bone mineral density as the two big concerns. So tenofovir is not absorbed, so we've always given it in the form of a prodrug, so-called TDF or tenofovir disoproxyl fumarate. And this gets absorbed. We get levels in the plasma of tenofovir. And then we get the collection in the lymphoid tissue, which is the active area. And what was created was this new form of tenofovir, another prodrug called tenofovir alafenamide, which is a little bit different. It gets absorbed in the gut, it gets into the plasma, but it doesn't get metabolized until it gets into the cells. And what had been previously shown is that you can use very low doses of TAF, as they refer to it, get low concentrations in the plasma, but actually achieve levels of the active form of tenofovir in the cells that are several fold higher than what you see with full doses of tenofovir. So the hope was that perhaps you could use a smaller dose, which would make co-formulation easier and perhaps even smaller pills, have lower plasma levels, which possibly could translate into less toxicity, but still have the high levels in the tissue to maintain the anti-HIV activity. So this was a phase two study, 48 weeks, the primary endpoint being the suppression at week 24 was a double-blind study of essentially the quad pill, tenofovir FTC, albitegravir, or cobacistat, or tenofovir alafenamide with portion of the quad. So it was two very active drugs, uh, combinations, one with standard tenofovir DF, the other with TAF. And these are the efficacy data. Again, it's only at 24 weeks, but showing very high levels of virologic suppression in both groups on the order of about 90% with similar marked increases in CD4 counts. And more importantly, the key is going to be toxicity, as long as this works. And this is the 24-week toxicity data. And you can see that overall, it's about the same. But a few of the p-values stand out, and that there was a decrease in creatinine clearance seen in both arms, as you would predict, if nothing else, from the cobacistat. Because as you know, you do see a very quick decrease in creatinine clearance and increase in creatinine with the use of cobacistat due to an effect on the way the renal tubules handle creatinine. So this wasn't surprising, but there was a greater decrease with the standard tenofovir TF form versus TAF. There was a difference in lipids that actually favored the TDF form, for reasons that I don't completely understand right now. And then there was also a difference in bone mineral density. There was a decline in both groups, but there was significantly less decline 
and those who receive calf in both the spine and the hip than those who receive TDF. And this is just a curves that show you what happens with creatinine, the very early predictable decline when you start cobacystat. And then over time, there still seemed to be some favoring of the calf versus TDF. And I thought was even more interesting, again, it's only 24 weeks of data, what was seen with the bone mineral density. And as you know, we always see a decline in bone mineral density when we start antiretrovirals. It's always greater if tenofovir is part of the combination than if it's not. But here there really was a remarkably different response in that there was a much greater decrease, very similar to other studies with TDF than with CAF. So there is a phase three study that's going on that's looking at these exact same combinations that will hopefully definitively answer the question as to whether the new formulation is equally effective and hopefully better tolerated. Now there were three experience trials that I wanted to share with you. Uh, one is the saline study. This is using a new drug, dolutegravir, a new integrase inhibitor, comparing it to a currently approved drug, raltegravir, in treatment experienced patients who are integrase inhibitor naive. As you're aware, dolutegravir has been thoroughly studied in treatment naive patients and has been submitted to the FDA for review. And it's anticipated that if there are no surprises, it will likely be approved in the next few months. So this is the randomized control trial in the experienced population. Standard dose dolutegravir 50 milligrams a day, which is what will be used in integrase inhibitor naive patients versus raltegravir with optimized background regimen. And these are the virologic response data. This is the interim analysis of 24 weeks. So more data will be coming in 48 weeks, demonstrating pretty remarkable levels of viral suppression in a treatment experienced population. 70% and 79%. And certainly non-inferiority criteria was met for dolutegravir, but in fact, if you look at the 95% confidence intervals, it's greater than zero at 3.1 to 15.9, which suggests that at least at 24 weeks, there may actually be superior virologic responses with the new integrase inhibitor compared to the old. But again, the 48-week data is to come. And there were similar effects on CD4 cells. The other interesting thing that's been discussed about dolutegravir, in addition to some of its other characteristics being given at a relatively low dose once a day without boosting, and it appears to be generally well tolerated, similar to raltegravir, is that there may be a difference in the genetic barrier to resistance. And there's been hints from in vitro data that that might be the case. And in the treatment naive trials, people have suggested that they're supportive of that because they have not seen any dolutegravir resistance emerge in those who are treatment naive starting on a regimen that includes dolutegravir. The limitation has been that in those studies, for example, the head-to-head -head comparison with raltegravir, there wasn't much in the way of resistance seen to raltegravir either. So presumably, these people are being identified very early after failure. Well, this represents a bit more of a test for these drugs because you're using a, a patient population that already has resistance where the backbone regimen may not be quite as strong. And indeed, they did find that there were less people who were able to have resistance testing performed in the group that failed dolutegravir versus raltegravir, 14 versus 34. So a little more than twice as many were able to be assessed for resistance in the raltegravir arm. And even more interesting was that amongst those in which they had data, there were only two people in the dolutegravir arm that had any evidence of drug-resistant mutations emerging on therapy versus 10 in the raltegravir arm. And of those who had resistance, 
they had so they had these mutations that were relatively unique and at least phenotypically not associated with resistance. So again, this is very supportive and perhaps the most supportive data that there may be a difference in the barrier to resistance of dolutegravir versus the so-called first-generation integrase inhibitors like raltegravir or even elvitegravir. These are the safety profile data comparing the two, again showing very similar results. Another experience trial was the so-called option study. And this study was designed to address a very specific question. And that traditionally when we're treating treatment experience patients, we use combination regimens that usually include a boosted PI with nucleosides and other drugs. So this group of patients, a multicenter US-based trial that had treatment experience, had genotypes, phenotypes, tropism tests performed, and had access to essentially all of the available drugs at the time the study was conducted, which includes everything from infuvertide to raltegravir to maraviroc. And they were collected all of the data. An expert group of members of the protocol team reviewed it and recommended a regimen. And the provider was given the option of choosing which nucleosides they would use as part of the regimen, since this is traditionally done in these kinds of experience trials and experience treatment regimens for patients. The study design, though, was addressing the question as to how much the nucleosides are actually contributing. So they got randomized to receive the best regimen available per the expert panel, plus or minus the nucleosides that were going to otherwise be used. And the primary efficacy endpoint was regimen failure, which was a composite of confirmed virologic failure or discontinuation of the nucleoside assignment, meaning that if you started on them and you stopped them, or changed them, that was a failure. Or if you were not initially started on nucleosides and chose to add them, that was also considered a failure. And then they broke down the endpoints. This is the baseline characteristics, pretty much as you might expect. CD4 counts about 200, viral loads of about 20,000, about half had R5 tropism, and about 20% had experienced infuvertide or raltegravir or integrase inhibitors in the past. But they all had enough active drugs in this regimen that they could have a phenotypic susceptibility score on the order of three. So an important point about this study is that these people did have a lot of treatment options, um, plus or minus the nucleosides, which is the randomized component. So this is what people actually received. More than half of the people received a regimen of raltegravir, darunavir, ritonavir with etravirine. And then you can see a smattering of people receiving a variety of other regimens. And then from the nucleosides perspective, half of them were randomized to not receive them. The other half, about 80%, received tenofovir or FTC. And here's the primary data looking at regimen failure at the top. You can see that non-inferiority was met, the criteria, using a 15% threshold. There was a lot of questions that came up during the course of this presentation. Why 15%? It seemed a little unusual. Most studies use 10 or 12%. And in fact, if you used 12%, it wouldn't have actually met the non-inferiority criteria because you can see the upper 95% confidence interval was actually 12.5. But the pre-specified threshold was 15%, and it really did show no difference. The same thing was true if you broke it down based on virologic failure or changing in the nucleoside regimen. So the conclusions from this study were that there really was no virologic benefit in a population of people that could use at least two fully active drugs from other classes. 
whether they receive nucleosides or not. And you can imagine further analyses are going to further parse out different patient populations to see if there are any select groups that may have benefited more from nucleosides than others. But at least based on this data, it would appear that if you have other active drugs to use, you may be able to spare people the nucleoside component, which at least improves convenience and perhaps reduces cost. From a safety perspective, there was not a lot of differences between the two. And then finally, the other experience trial was the second-line study. The second-line study was a multi-center, multinational study of treatment patients who have failed a first-line regimen with nucleosides and non-nucleosides. So this is an interesting group because this is one of the most common situations that we see here in the United States as first-line failures, as many people start first-line regimens with nukes and non-nukes. And when they fail, we know they generally fail with a 184V or NNRTI resistance or both. And one of the unanswered questions, although we all have different things we do in practice, is to how to manage these people optimally. So this study randomized them to either lopinavir-ritonavir or boosted PI with two or three nucleosides of choice versus lopinavir-ritonavir with raltegravir. So the idea is, can you use so-called recycled nucleosides in this setting with a boosted PI, or are you better off using two brand new fully active drugs, the boosted PI and raltegravir? Now, this study is a little bit different than some of the other studies that are being designed like this in that these people did have access to drug resistance testing in over about three-quarters of the cases. So they were able to use that. In other developing countries, you don't have access to that. But the long and short of it is that at 48 weeks, the virologic response rates were extremely high and similar between both groups, suggesting that the use of so-called recycled nukes with the boosted PI is a very effective strategy, as appears to be using the boosted PI with the integrase inhibitor. And this is the safety endpoints. There was really no difference in overall safety. Let me talk briefly about what's new in CURE research. I think everybody is aware that until a couple of months ago, it was felt that Timothy Brown was the only person on the planet that had been cured of HIV. You're aware that this occurred as a result of him being diagnosed with acute leukemia, receiving ablative chemotherapy, total body XRT, undergoing graft-versus-host disease, and being transplanted with this very unique bone marrow from somebody who has CCR5 Delta 32 homozygous. And people have proposed that any one or all of these things may have contributed to this person's cure, along with the possibility that it's merely chance, since the N is only one. But he went through a lot. He actually went through this twice, because he had a relapse of his leukemia. Um, and none of this is obviously going to be pursued on a routine basis. But there's a lot to be learned from trying to tease out the different strategies that were used. At this meeting, there was a continued focus on dealing with what is thought to be one of the major obstacles to cure, and that's the latent reservoir of virus listed here in that yellow cell at the top. And a lot of ideas discussed in potential early pilot studies looking at potential strategies to purge or activate these cells to release their latent proviral HIV and hopefully result in some clearance. And the most of the focus has been using HDAC inhibitors, and there continue to be small pilot studies demonstrating that this can be a strategy to at least induce transcription, translation, and the release of virus. But I think what got more attention at this meeting was another potential strategy to address the reservoir. And that's not trying to 
address it once it's been established, but perhaps trying to either prevent it or minimize it from emerging. So there were a couple of studies. One is a study that actually identified people with primary infection very early. So these found people who had a median duration of infection of 15 days. And some of you are probably familiar with this figure on the left. And it breaks up the stages of primary infection based on virology and serology. And there's the so-called 5-big-1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And you can see 5-big-1 very far off to the left are people who are HIV RNA positive only. 5-big-2 is RNA and P24 antigen positive only. So very, very early. And 3 are people who are now ELISA positive but don't have a positive Western blot. Very, very early. And if you look, you can see that about half of these people were in this 5-big-1 or 5-big-2 stage of infection. So again, very, very early, very difficult patients to follow. But what they found was they studied these people who treated extremely early and demonstrated that the timing of therapy makes a difference. This is total HIV DNA in PBMCs, showing that it's significantly lower in those who are treated in 5-IG-1 even than 5-IG-2 or 5-IG-3. So very, very early. And when they looked at even more relevant, perhaps, integrated DNA in PBMCs, these are the cells that we really do believe represent the inducible reservoir of infection. You can see that there was almost none detectable in those treated during 5-IG-1. And the same thing was true when you look at the biggest lymphoid tissue in the body, the gut, showing virtually no virus detectable in this uh, integrated DNA, suggesting that if you could capture people extremely early, that you may be able to markedly reduce the size of the reservoir. And there was a study that was not presented at this meeting, but was recently published, and it got a lot of attention from the French group, the so-called Visconti cohort. These were individuals who were treated early who stopped therapy. And these people actually weren't treated as early as these individuals. But they found that about 15% of 14 well-characterized individuals who were not only treated early, but treated for a long time, often for years, which is a little different than most of our current experience with others treated with primary infection, that when treated for years, that 14 of them were able to stop therapy and be followed with, without any reemergence of plasma virus after years of follow-up off of therapy. So there may be a viable strategy if we can capture people early enough, that if we treat them early and treat them for a prolonged period of time, perhaps to allow what little reservoir is established to decay, that this may be a way to reduce the size of the reservoir and result in a so-called functional cure. And that leads me to the cured baby. I suspect everybody in the room heard about the cured baby. If you didn't, uh, you weren't watching the media during the conference because it got a tremendous amount of attention. So this was uh, in Mississippi, a woman who presented in labor and was found by rapid HIV testing to be positive. So she didn't access prenatal antiretroviral therapy. She didn't receive it until she presented in labor. And because of that, it was decided that they would give her the baby full combination therapy, not the traditional prophylactic type regimen but actually treat the baby in essence as if the baby was documented to be infected. And in fact, after doing that, they were able to demonstrate meeting standard criteria for vertical transmission of two documented positive virologic tests on the baby from separate plasma samples that the baby was indeed, by that criteria, infected. And you can see the viral load initially of about 20,000, then 2,000, and gradually over the course of about three weeks declined undetectable levels. 
So the baby was infected, the baby was started on combination therapy and maintained on combination therapy. Initially it was with nukes and nevirapine, then it was with nukes and HDPI. And then the baby was lost to follow-up, showed up months later, off of therapy for any whatever reason the mother had stopped the treatment. The physicians rechecked the viral load and got ready to restart therapy, but much to their surprise found that there was no detectable viral load. They brought into the fold a variety of virologists who then looked very carefully for evidence of virus within the baby and were not able to do it using sophisticated research techniques, resulting in a lot of suspicion and speculation that perhaps this baby was functionally cured. And I just list here some of the things that have been proposed to explain what happened. One of them is that the baby was never actually infected and this was just transmission or transfusion of maternal blood that resulted in the initial detectable, repeatedly detectable viral load. It's a little hard to explain that based on the amount of blood that would have need to be transfused from the mother since the mother's viral load actually was pretty low, only about 2,500. In addition, the fact that the virus persisted in the plasma for about three weeks, that makes this a little less likely, but it is one of the things that has been proposed and that the baby was never actually infected but just received very effective post-exposure prophylaxis. Alternatively, perhaps early treatment and some unique characteristics of the neonatal immune system prevented or limited the reservoir and allowed for clearance. Uh, the reservoir perhaps was very small and it will take longer for rebound to occur, so time will tell or maybe the child was destined to be an elite controller or something else. But these are the things that need to be pursued with this particular child and others perhaps treated in a similar way. So cardiovascular disease, lots of attention at this meeting. I think one of the interesting things that's starting to emerge is that there are specific types of plaque that may be more relevant than others. Cardiologists have told us that this plaque vulnerability is associated with about 70% of the people who present with acute coronary syndrome, and it's defined as positive remodeling with sort of eccentric plaque within the vessel, or low attenuation, non-calcified plaque, or spotty microcalcification, as, as opposed to calcified plaque. So Steve Grinspoon presented a, a, a case control study of patients who had CT angiography, where they were able to look at this in 102 HIV infected, 41 non-infected MAC-controlled men who had no known cardiac disease. And they were able to demonstrate that if you look at the panels on the left, that there was a higher frequency of low attenuated plaque uh, as well as positively remodeling plaque in those who had HIV versus not. And about 8% of the people had three markers of vulnerable plaque in the HIV group versus none in the HIV negative. They then went to pursue the pathogenesis of this. Why may it be unique that this particularly high-risk plaque exists in people with HIV? And what they described that amongst all of the various different risk factors, HIV status and adjusted multivariate analysis was the only one that was associated with this increased risk. None of these other risk factors were. And when they looked at markers of inflammation, they found that a variety of them, including IL-6, LPS, and soluble CD-163, occurred more often. And interestingly enough, in a multivariate analysis, this soluble CD-163, a marker of monocyte macrophage, was the only thing that remained significantly associated with an increased risk of this vulnerable plaque suggesting that perhaps monocyte activation, which at least in theory could be driven by microbial translocation, which is unique 
pathogenesis associated with HIV may be a big contributor to cardiovascular disease in people with HIV, and particularly potential cardiovascular disease that's at higher risk, the acute coronary syndrome. So briefly, Stuart Ray is going to talk about HCV in detail. There were a variety of presentations from co-infected patients, small studies presented using the so-called NS34 protease inhibitors. You know about Bisepravir and Filaprovir, and then Simeprovir, which is a new once-a-day protease inhibitor that is currently submitted to the FDA and under review, as well as with the NS5B and NS5A inhibitors. I'm going to show you very briefly, two to give you a hint of the future, I think, of direct-acting agents. Uh, these are all in mono-infected patients. This was the COSMOS study that used this new Simeprovir, the new protease inhibitor, currently under FDA review, with NS5B Sifosprovir, another new drug that is also under FDA review, plus or minus ribavirin for either 12 weeks or 24 weeks. These were in prior null responders, so very high-risk patients, but F0 to 2, so people without extensive fibrosis and cirrhosis. That was the population. This is the virologic data. Regardless of the use of ribavirin, you can see this dramatic decline in viral load in a matter of a few weeks. And then this is the data. The 24-week data is incomplete because of the lack of follow-up so far. But if you look at the 12 weeks of data and you focus on the SVR8 at the very bottom, you can see 90-plus percent of individuals who received just 12 weeks of Simeprovir and Sifosprovir, both oral agents given once a day with minimal side effects, with or without ribavirin, achieved SVR8s, which is likely to correlate very well with svr 12 and then from a safety perspective, it was mostly anemia and those who received ribavirin. So again, easier to take, much better tolerated, and very, very effective, at least in the small study. And then finally, the electron study, which used sifosprevir with an NS5A inhibitor, I do this every time, Ladipasvir. Um, and this was a study where they originally looked at sifosprevir with ribavirin in treatment-naive and null responders, and they showed if you look at the top, uh, SVR12s are only 10% of the null responders. So they thought perhaps adding another drug, an NS5A, would improve responses. And I'll have you focus on the right-hand side of the curve, which is using the NS5B with the NS5A plus ribavirin, showing again in small numbers, but 9 of 9 or 100% of the null responders achieved an SVR. Adverse events very well tolerated. Let me come back to our original question. Which of the following is true regarding pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP? Sinopra FTC has consistently been shown to work better in men than women. Sinopra FTC does not work in men who have sex with men. Adherence is a relatively minor problem when using a one pill per day option for PrEP. And the voice study did not show a protective effect of the Sinopra FTC, Sinopravir, or Sinopravir containing vaginal gel. Please go ahead and vote. Fantastic. My, my work is done here. <laughs> so let me thank you all for your attention. I think we have a few minutes for questions. Paul? So Eric, you've done a lot of work over the years with acute infection. I assume you have a number of people in your practice that are 
on antiretroviral therapy. Given Visconti, um, have you been tempted to take anyone off treatment? Have you done it? If so, do you have any um, controllers? And would you recommend that people in practice that have patients that have been started on early treatment for a long time intentionally stop treatment? Yeah. You know, it's a challenge. It's interesting because, you know, as you know, for this was a, a theory that was promoted in a lot of studies with the idea that if you treat early, you preserve HIV-specific immune responses, you would have a smaller reservoir and perhaps the immune responses to control HIV, you'd interrupt therapy. There were a lot of fits and starts. There was a famous report of five people from Boston. But all of the follow-up demonstrated that for the most part, treating early and then interrupting therapy didn't translate into much in the way of virologic suppression. Maybe some subtle differences between those who start early, but not enough to justify doing it in an era where probably any detectable virus is unacceptable. Um, I think what's different about Visconti, because at first glance, these people weren't treated all that early. It wasn't like the group here. Many of them were in the first, I mean, order the first few months of infection when they started treatment. The big difference in my mind was the duration of therapy. And that all of the studies that we were involved in and others, uh, we treated people for some sh relatively short, finite period of time, 6, 9, 12 months. They treated them for years before they stopped. And maybe the difference is more of a focus on allowing what was a relatively small reservoir more time to decay. It still was only about 15% of the people that they treated. So I think it's still relatively rare. My sense is that if people are tolerating their current therapy, stopping it, with a relatively small chance of a so-called functional cure is probably not justified for the masses. I think we owe it to our patients to have the discussion and to do it in close follow-up. I, I think more of this is likely to prompt further studies in this area. That would be my recommendation. Um, I have a couple of questions here. So one question, this is a great question. Um, poor adherence was also seen in the IPREX study, which is the study of MSM but the intervention was still effective. Is there speculation about gender differences? So when FemPrep first came out, a lot of people thought maybe this is a gender difference. And in fact, there may be a biologic explanation for it in that it appears that tenofovir gets higher concentrations in the tissue, in rectal tissue, than vaginal tissue. Turns off emtricitabine, which is the other part of the PrEP, actually is the exact opposite. So some people speculated until the adherence data came out. My guess is it's all a matter of degree. And that if you look at IPREX, you're right. There were a lot of people with poor adherence. And if you broke it down based on the level of adherence, the overall response rate was in the 40% range. But if you looked at those people who had biologic evidence of 100% adherence, the response rates were probably in the 80 90% range. So I think it's all a matter of degree. And I think what we saw in FemPrep and we saw in Voice are just levels of adherence that were much lower even than what was seen in IPREX. And that when they do the analysis, they'll probably find there were a subset of people with better adherence from which it did work. So it's all a matter of degree. And when you start getting down to adherence rates of 30% or less, you simply do not have enough drug being taken by people to be able to demonstrate a difference. Uh, when, should we, uh, when should we check DEXA scans? Everyone at all ages, you know, this is a great opportunity for me to turf this to a presentation later in the day by Todd Brown. Todd, as you know, is an endocrinologist and has been really a leader in the field, and particularly in the area of um, the effects of HIV and antiretroviral therapy <clears throat> on bone mineral density. So sit tight, uh, and please take off advantage of him being here to ask these questions, for which there's not randomized control data. But there are at least some 
guidelines or recommendations that have been put forward by experts in the field, including Todd. Uh, and then finally, the last question I have here is, will guidelines change to encourage, in, to encourage full regimens for prenatal exposure? What a great question. So when this baby story came out, you know, the first thing I think a lot of people started to do is look back at old data and look at what the guidelines are and what the justification is. It turns out that I think it's the British guidelines already recommend for women who present off antiretroviral therapy that the babies receive actual full combination therapy. The USA guidelines, the HHS guidelines, do not. But the reason they don't is actually based on a randomized control trial. And there was a randomized control trial in exactly this patient population that randomized randomized the babies to one of three different regimens that include a full combination regimen that included a protease inhibitor with nucleosides, a very limited regimen, and a regimen of two nucleosides with nevirapine given, I think, three doses in the first week. And what they found was that in the two more intensive regimens, the prophylaxis regimen with a little bit of nevirapine with nucleoside, versus the full combination regimen, there was no difference in the reduction in risk. And they were actually both quite effective in reducing the risk of vertical transmission. But there were considerable more toxicity associated with the full combination regimen. So it was a randomized control trial that led to the current guidelines. No difference in efficacy, better tolerability. It was a no-brainer. Um, whether this single patient is enough to change the guidelines that were based upon a large randomized control trial I would guess not. My feeling is that there are probably a lot of providers, in fact, there were surveys done years ago, a lot of providers that already do this and give full combination therapy. And I don't think it should take very long for people to start to identify people in Europe and in the United States that already receive this kind of therapy but never stop treating. And perhaps, and hopefully, in the context of a clinical trial, design studies to carefully look at what happened in more than just one patient when people were treated in this way and then stopped therapy. Thanks. Thank you very much, Eric. That was terrific.